from KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Daniel Knowles about his new book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Individually, I think everybody, you know, certainly living somewhere like Omaha, but probably most American cities, individually buying a car is almost certainly the right thing for you to do. But for society, it's not. And how we fix that, that's a big political problem. We're talking about car culture in the context of climate change, pollution, and city design, as well as a vision for a future less reliant on our vehicles. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. If you're enjoying the type of content you get here at Riverside Chats, conversations that go in-depth on art, politics, and everything in between, please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can find a link in the show notes that allows you to give a recurring or single amount, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is nothing. In which case, ouch, if you think this is a valuable part of your week, then we would appreciate the support so we can continue to give you the quality that you came here for in the first place. Thank you for considering supporting Riverside Chats and enjoy the show. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. I grew up in Omaha and I've met a lot of people across the Midwest and there's a personality trait that I think describes a fairly large portion of its occupants. We like cars. Big cars, loud cars, quiet cars, fast cars, extra cars, different cars for different occasions like shoes. Outside of a few places in the city, it's more or less inconceivable that anyone can get around without a car unless your life lines up with the bus routes. In other words, having a car is often a requirement, not a choice. But what are the implications of living in a world that has to be designed for and reliant upon cars? My guest today is Daniel Knowles, whose new book is Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. If you love your car so much that you can't imagine a world without it, this may be an hour you'll want to skip. Here's my conversation with Daniel Knowles. We're on Omaha Public Radio. I've lived in the Midwest my whole life, and uh, I don't know for sure how people's relationship with cars change regionally exactly, but I, I do know from my experience as a Midwesterner, that we maybe uniquely adore our cars, that there's, you know, it's like we have our dogs, we have our cats, we have our cars. <laughs> is, is there something about the Midwest and cars that you think is different than maybe other regions? I hear it a lot. Um, and I don't think Midwesterners love their cars as much as uh, Texans. I kind of think Texans are the people I've met who seem to be bound you know almost surgically to the to the wheel in their like daily lives and i have you know texan friends who kind of travel around and you know going convoys because they don't want to share a car and say no you drive my own car obviously um whereas i feel like here in the midwest i think it, it you know it's more than it's a car-centric culture but not as it's not the most dramatically one i've encountered but then you're in a part of the midwest that i that, that i don't know so well um uh, I don't know, I feel like I'm probably slightly biased by being being here in Chicago and, and you know, which is not the most, car, probably the least car-centric place in the Midwest. So. What, what is it about Texas? Why do they have such a strong uh, identity that's based around their cars? Well, I think that, that in Texas, it's very difficult to live your life without a car. You know, the way their cities are designed, um, their weather even, but principally the kind of the, the size of the place as well, you know, means that I feel like the Texans I know consider it completely normal. And actually, this is something that you get in the Midwest, too, that's always surprised me. But they're like, yeah, it's, uh, it's not very far. It's a seven hour drive. Uh, <laughs> nothing really. Um, and just the bigness of the of the place, I think, kind of and, and the lack of any alternatives just sort of tie people to their cars. I think you really need a car. And uh and it goes hand in hand with everything else about being, you know, big, everything being so large. So you have your big, big house, your big car, giant long road and uh, giant garden, big dog. Everything in Texas is huge, you know. <laughs> right. Well, the, the idea of the car as status symbol certainly makes sense. I wonder if that's changing, yeah. though. I mean, do, do you think that cars are less of a status symbol maybe overall outside of Texas specifically? But like, have they lost some of that uh, that status? Oh, I do think that's happening. Yes. Um, if you kind of look at, for example, the sales of um, convertibles, they've all but collapsed. And I think that 
a big pickup truck remains a big kind of status symbol in certain circles. But I think if you look at younger drivers, you know, who younger people were never the primary buyers of brand new cars because they didn't have the money. But nowadays they, they, you know, the average buyer of a new car is sort of, I think, well into his, his late 50s, maybe even 60s. Um, and younger people really can't afford to buy cars as status symbols, and I think they don't want to. And I think actually, funnily, you know, if you look at some parts of the country, and probably not Texas, and I'm not sure Omaha either, but certainly, you know, if you look at the Northeast, um, some of the bigger expensive cities on the coasts, you know, kind of a real stats a symbol I slightly think is is being able to afford to to live in a neighborhood where you don't need a car it's being able to go oh, yeah I walk to work that's a that's quite a status symbol in in um these days you know because it means that you can afford the very high rents that sort of the few neighborhoods where you really don't need a car uh, and can get by without one um are in this country so yeah, I think about that. The things that is happening in, in America, I think, uh, you know, in the book, I kind of take a, the reader on a bit of an international tour of um, various places, I think, are going more, you know, another level. Yeah, which yeah, I go to Tokyo and to Paris and Amsterdam and, and along the bus line, it can work. But I think for a lot of people, because we've just never really known that as a possibility or it's this major emergency if you don't have a car and you need to solve it immediately, that's kind of the only way a lot of people conceptualize a carless existence. So I wonder for you, have you found that it's kind of maybe part of the mission of the book to help people understand, like, what does it even mean? What's an alternative to a car-centric world? Yes, absolutely. And I think even as I was writing it, it was something that I didn't appreciate enough quite how difficult it can be sometimes just to make people Oh, not even to make people, but to get to to get across this idea of oh, you don't actually need a car. The world forces you to need a car because I think what you just described is exactly right. A lot of people think, but if I don't have my car, you know, everything will still be the same. The kind of the the existence that I um, live, the way I get to work, the way I get around, will you know be impossible. And so, of course, I need my car because that's how things are set up. And and yeah, I think you know people go on vacations to you know to you know amsterdam or venice or new york city even and get around without a car and don't make the connection of like oh this isn't just a tourist thing like people actually live like that and and that it's quite hard to live like that in most parts of actually not just the united states certainly the us but most many cities all over the world kind of the the number of cars is, is makes it difficult to live any other way and and i think that's the kind of argument what I've been trying to get across with the book is like cars, when everybody has a car, it makes it, it's, we end up designing everything in such a way that it's impossible not to have one. And if you begin to get rid of the cars, then we can redesign our cities in a way that you don't need them. As far as your personal journey with cars, when, when did this problem start to manifest for you? Do you know, I think really it was uh, several years ago I lived in Kenya. I used to cover Africa for The Economist and I lived in Nairobi. And Nairobi is a city where I think probably no more than 20% of the population kind of own a car, probably less than that. Um, but it's very car-centric and I had a car. It's the only time I've owned a car and kind of relied on a car. And, you know, the traffic jams is terrible. Um, the road infrastructure is very bad. And so driving kind of sucked. And I came to really resent driving. But I also saw that, you know, for the majority of kind of people in Nairobi, being able to just get around, you know, they couldn't afford a car and being able to get around was all the harder for them because they were having to walk across these, you know, expressways that were being built and these kind of out to these sprawling suburbs that were being built. And I thought, you know, the entire world is basically developing out in this kind of way set by cars, which, you know, happened in this country a hundred years ago and you know where i'm from in the uk more like 60 or 70 years ago but really we've rebuilt our whole world around cars and it makes it extremely difficult for anybody who can't afford a car or can't drive a car for whatever reason and it makes it difficult if you just don't want to have a car so that's kind of how it, it began but you know I think earlier than that, I used to cycle everywhere when I lived in London. And then I obviously I learned to drive to move to the US um, before. Sorry, confusingly, I lived in, in DC before I then left and I lived in Africa and I moved to, to here in Chicago. And uh, yeah, being just, just the more I had to drive, the more I thought about it. And I think once you begin seeing how cars and parking and 
roads just dominate our lives it becomes very uh, difficult to answer i sort of became mad basically <laughs> well so you mentioned in there uh the trajectory of cars as this promise this kind of utopian promise that can reshape everything that does eventually literally reshape the way a lot of our cities and countries look to some extent so maybe for some context we could go back there what, what was the initial promise of cars well i think that you know if you actually go back and i read a lot of history if you look at the early days of the automobile you know a bit before the um the first world war um they were really playthings for the rich and actually funnily something that 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 i found fascinating is that the car industry kind of emerged from the bicycle industry and at first they were really vehicles of of pleasure and particularly in a time when you know cities were very um crowded and polluted and uh kind of you know overwhelming people will be able to go out into the countryside and get fresh air in a car and have a picnic and they spread as these kind of leisure machines and 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 here in the u.s they also spread you know farmers were the first people to to get cars and the ford model t was very popular in farmers and i think that's kind of how it would have stayed um you know vehicles and, and cars being this important thing for for people either going to or living in the countryside had it not been for this kind of very deliberate process that you know, began in the 1920s, 1930s that said, do you know what, we're going to make our cities possible for everybody to drive everywhere too. And so cities began kind of, you know, widening the roads and tearing out streetcars and imposing jaywalking laws and doing all these things that basically made it much harder for, you know, for ordinary people to get around without a car and spread cities out. And then you know, began the development of kind of suburbia. And so all of our cities, you know, especially here in America, just kind of spread out in a way that 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 uh, suddenly everybody had to have a car. But it was initially deliberate. And there were these huge protests at first um, in the 1920s against the, the way cars were kind of taking over the streets. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Daniel Knowles, author of the new book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. What do you think? Are cars worth the trouble of city design, air pollution, and carbon emissions? Do you see a future without them? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. What was the motivation to have cars go from this plaything for the rich to something that most individuals had or needed to have? Well, so it's kind of, this is the, the thrust of the book, is that I think it's basically a sort of collective action problem, a prisoner's dilemma. I think the thing is that if you're the first person to buy a car, um, and you're the only person to have a car in a you know an otherwise sort of walkable place, um, it's great. Like, you're, the problem is, is not your car. Your car is great. Your car takes you from, you know, point A to point B really quickly and, you know, without any diversions uh, or whatever. But then once everybody's got a car, um, you're stuck in traffic. Um, the amount of land that's needed for the parking spaces to accommodate all these cars means that suddenly, you know, your neighborhood looks completely different and, uh, and everything's further apart. And, and so it no longer is this quick, useful thing. But I think initially, you know, for the people who are buying cars at the very beginning, you know, they, there were only a few people who had them. And, and so they were great. And, uh, and other people could see that and they wanted them. So it was a sort of it was a status symbol but it was also you know a practical thing and then the more people that got them the more you needed one because otherwise you were left out and you were getting run over um so i think that's that's sort of the process by which it spread well it's kind of a a, a choice to prioritize what can be bought by consumers individually as opposed to you know public transportation you mentioned streetcars being pulled out why is it from the perspective mm. of maybe governments that it wouldn't be worth investing in more uh, sustainable public transportation as opposed to letting cars take everything over? I mean, it's a good question, but I think a lot of it happened almost by accident. If you look at streetcars, and I write about Los Angeles in the book, which actually had the most extensive streetcar network in the world. Um, you know, what happened was that so many people bought cars that they were blocking up the intersections and the streetcars were going more slowly. Um, so suddenly streetcars were not as reliable because they were getting kind of trapped at, at intersections um, each time. And so, well, you needed a car all the more because the cars were making the streetcars worse. The other thing was that a lot of governments, you know, in 
before kind of mass cars, car ownership spread, like public transport was profitable for local governments. It paid a lot of money that helped kind of subsidize, you know, electricity companies, which are often municipal as well, and um, subsidize, you know, kind of housing development. They used to make money and, and taxes for local governments. And so when they started losing money because they were not able to compete, you know, with with the traffic that they were suddenly having to share the roads with, um, they they began to fall apart. And, and governments, you know, in the Great Depression, if we're looking at Los Angeles, didn't have the money to kind of put in to save the networks. And I think that the the possibility of, of of undoing, of blocking cars, of taking away people's cars proved so kind of difficult and, and unpopular because people who already own cars were politically powerful that it just didn't happen in many places. Um, but of course, it began to happen later if we look at, you know, New York City as somewhere that really did begin to kind of pull back, at, um, you know, after the Second World War, really after the 1970s, make it harder for people to drive. Um, so it can happen, but it, yeah, it didn't happen in that period. And how, how was it that this became kind of the model, you said, then for, for the UK it's a little bit on a, a later scale, but it ends up with a lot of the same problems. Then, as you mentioned already, eventually Nairobi as well. So, I mean, was was there a lack of reflection happening? Like, it wasn't necessarily that lessons were being learned and then different models were sort of being adapted from that? Or what's the trajectory? Well, I mean, it's interesting to contrast what happened in Europe. And I, you know, again, wrote about this in, in, in you know, Mass car ownership really took off in the 1950s in most of Europe after the Second World War. And a lot of governments really kind of did see some of the problems that had happened in, in, in the US and, and did want to kind of control it. But they, they didn't want to tell people, no, you can't have cars. Um, so they, you know, in the UK, there's this um, uh, guy called Patrick Buchanan who wrote a, a kind of a, a report about how to rebuild CCs. But there was this attempt to kind of do it in a more planned, organised way. So they still built the highways and they still kind of did the slum clearances and the, you know, urban redevelopment. But they, but but it was perhaps a little bit less destructive. I think what's happening in a lot of the developing world now is often. The, it, the, it's such a breakneck urbanization. You know, if you look at particularly Africa, you know, but I also used to work in India, you know, you have such rapid movements of such enormous numbers of people into cities and such rapid growth in the kind of middle class that, that can afford to buy cars for the first time that sort of before governments, you know, people in charge can even begin to realize the problem um, and the difficulty car ownership is already this kind of soaring uh, thing. People are buying them faster. And I think that's kind of what's happened everywhere, basically, is that, that you know, you have societies that go from very few cars to kind of mass car ownership in the space of 10 years or so. And it is what I was saying earlier, this process of, oh, God, they've got a car, I better get a car. Um, a car is a kind of luxury thing until everybody's got one and then you begin to see the problem. So I think it's sort of, it's often, despite 100 years of uh, kind of knowing about some of these problems, difficult to to stop them because they creep up on you. <laughs> well, and you write that the problem is that cars impose costs on everybody else. They are among the world's leading causes of what economists call externalities. So tell me about this idea of externalities and why it's something people should maybe be concerned about. Right. So, I mean, this is a kind of fundamental thing in economics. And, and, and externality is, you know, if I buy something from you, you know, um, we both gain. But if it affects some third person who's not involved in the tra transaction, they're external, they're hit by it. And so, you know, when I drive my car, um, I mean, I have a car, but when I drive a car, like I'm creating pollution, which affects people who might live near the road. Um, I am creating noise um, and I'm using up kind of land that, um, you know, somebody else um, may not be able to cross. And, you know, I kind of make it harder for somebody to cross the road. I may hit, make it more dangerous for somebody to cycle so or to, to walk or whatever. So there's lots of ways in which kind of cars affect the people who are not, you know, the buyers or sellers of vehicles or the even the governments providing them, they they kind of, and the, the argument of the book is that kind of when every or when so many people have are using cars, it makes other forms of transport much harder. And so kind of 
it's not as easy to just say, oh, well, not everybody can have a car. It's basically, I think, think the thrust of it. If a few people have a car, we can, you know, or even a significant minority of people drive, cities can still be walkable. They can still have functional public transport. But, you know, um, if you, if, if the more and more people have their own private cars, the more cities have to transform and to accommodate them and and uh the harder it gets for everybody else so so the pollution is the biggest kind of obvious externality but i i think there's a lot of them ways in which essentially the more people drive the more cars are on the road the more they kind of worsen other parts of life in a very quiet way that you don't necessarily notice like what are some of those what are some of those quiet ways well i mean the the example is is that if i it's not actually that quiet if i want to get around you know i want to get you know here in chicago at least it's dense enough that i can you know kind of get almost anywhere on a bicycle but it will be scary because there's a lot of people who might hit me um it's hard work kind of getting around a bicycle the other way is you know if if everybody used to rely on a bus um if you know five of those people say the bus transported you know 20 people in a rural area um into town or in a suburb into town and then you know 18 of them get cars the two people who are left who maybe they can't afford a car or they can't um they can't drive for whatever reason you know maybe they're disabled and they can't drive well that bus is no longer profitable um so um they kind of lose out in 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 that way you know that 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 the kind of public service that used to serve more kind of broadly if we get into the politics of it you know governments now kind of impose all these laws to try and make sure that uh you know that there's free parking everywhere and that affects you if you rent an apartment um in a place that uh, the government has had a law that says it has to um you know include a certain amount of parking you're paying for that parking whether or not you use it at all even if you don't have a car and it can raise your rent by you know quite a lot i mean a parking space costs as, as much as for fifty thousand dollars to build um so there's lots of basic ways in which kind of car dependency makes you makes people worse off sort of indirectly and we shouldn't forget the direct stuff too which is that you know you have to pay for the cars it's a lot of money running a car and it's getting more expensive and so if you need to have a car if your kind of life is impossible without it because of the way your city's designed that's just a huge chunk of your income that you have to spend that you could spend on other stuff to go back to the idea of externalities (laughs) for a second i imagine a problem with that argument is people might be less susceptible to feel, I mean, there's kind of an inherent need to have empathy in there, right? That if it's benefiting <laughs> you and it's causing problems for other people, you still might say, yeah, but I'm still doing okay. So do I need to care so much, right? <laughs> is, is, is there a struggle to get people to care about externalities? Oh, for sure. I mean, there is in everything, um, you know, pollution, um, general, the climate, you know, I think kind of the, the big problem of, of economics in general is, is getting people to care about about externalities and getting the world to be organized uh so that they 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 matter less but as i keep saying this is a collective action problem this is something where everybody acting individually in their own interest ends up making everybody worse off and so i think the role of government in general you know in the argument of this book is that we should look for for government that that helps uh kind of set the rules up so that you acting in your own interest also acts in the collective interest. Um, and the kind of proliferation of cars, the way we subsidize them, the way we make it so easy for them to, for, for people to get them and so difficult for any alternative is it ultimately makes us all worse off. You know, individually, I think everybody, you know, certainly living somewhere like Omaha, but probably most American cities individually buying a car is almost certainly the right thing for you to do. But for society, it's not. And how we fix that, that's a big political problem. And I wish I had a clear answer, but I've, <laughs> I've tried to lay out a few of them in the book, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, do you, do you, because yeah, I talk about uh, climate change on this, this show all the time. And I think that's another example. And it's, I run into this problem, which is I, I don't necessarily know how to make the compelling case. I think you can lay out the logic, and economics is probably a good way to do that for why this is bad overall or why you should maybe, even if you value your individualism in this very profound way, the, the collective still matters because you're still part of that collective, right? 
is is there a way to get people to think more collectively uh, that exists that is compelling? Because I, don't, I sometimes I worry that just straight numbers and logic <laughs> is not enough. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a challenge, and I think one of the ways that I you know have have got across this to people sometimes is to talk about choice and freedom and the freedom to to not drive a car um and you know point out that 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 um if you try and put put into your shoes you say well look i I, if i want to walk um you know in this neighborhood it's really difficult because i have to cross these you know incredibly wide roads that reduces my freedom it means that i feel kind of trapped by by roads if i want to get around on my bicycle i feel kind of scared so sometimes that goes across well i think also i just think about the politics and what you say about climate change i think it's it's uh you know I, I, something that i also find myself saying is that this that there is a that there is a kind of conservative case here that that i'm also making you know cars really raise cost of government a lot they raise we spend a lot of our taxes particularly if you live in a kind of very sprawling suburb a lot of your taxes are just going on maintaining the roads um it's a very expensive way and government kind of rules are essentially forcing you to to buy a car you know you're kind of being told you must get around this way. You don't get to choose. Um, uh, we're going to set things up so that it's you have a car or you're stuck, and uh, it's a kind of giant bailout for, for for car companies at your expense. So I think sometimes getting across that that lack of freedom, that uh, the way things are set up, sometimes that that helps. But I think it's a it's a challenge, as you say. I'm talking with Daniel Knowles, author of the new book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can find the backlog of all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. Today I'm talking with Daniel Knowles, author of the new book, Carmageddon, how Cars Make Life Worse, and What to Do About It. The book is available now, and here is the rest of our conversation. The second part of the the subtitle of your book, so we have How Cars Make Life Worse, but also What to Do About It. So let, let's turn to that. What what can be done? Because part of part of one, like an immediate struggle that I think of is our mayor, our governor, likely because of some of the conservative identity politics, likes the optics of cars and likes, you know, kind of where we started this conversation, that there's this idea that if we're going to remodel things, it's, you know, somehow it's bad, it's liberal, it's not the way things should look uh, based on political ideology. And that that's a tough conversation to start. But where do we start? What What's what's a basic solution maybe the average person can do to try to fix the problem of cars? Oh, God. Um, well, I mean, I think the average person, the first thing they can do is, is to just try and... Uh, lobby their local politicians you know it's amazing how much people listen um and right now a lot of the time uh, you know i i sit in my neighborhood kind of arguments about parking and stuff are always dominated by 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 car drivers very often i think if we're talking about kind of government about what 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 mayors can or what policies you can do quietly that have an effect one thing that that's been really interesting um in the u.s in in recent years and and uh uh, is the spread of rules of, of changing rules about parking. Parking is a really subtle way in which we're sort of forced to spend this money to subsidize cars by by having free parking. And a lot of governments, I think, are beginning to realize, you know, California has done this, but it's actually happening all over the country, that by kind of mandating parking, you're, you're adding to the cost of everything. You know, you're making groceries cost more because the supermarket has to have a giant parking lot that's half empty a lot of the time. So changing those rules, you know, they don't generate as much heat, as much anger, and yet begin to, to reshape how the incentives sort of work. So I think that's one of the, the things that is happening in, in America. I think, uh, you know, in the book, I kind of take a, the reader on a bit of an international tour of um, various places, I think, are going more, you know, another level yet, which you know, I go to Tokyo and to Paris and Amsterdam. And, and you know, when you, when you get to a certain point, when you have a, a critical mass of people who, who see the benefits of living in a relatively less car-centric 
world, you know, and, and, and the benefits of being able to walk their child to school or um, take the child to school on the bike or, or you know, have one car instead of two. Um, it, it, they grow. It keeps growing. Nobody ever wants to go back. If you look at, you know, no city that's kind of taken out a freeway in its city center. You know, if we think of, you know, the, the old Embarcado in uh, San Francisco, everyone wants to put it back in. So I kind of think that sometimes, you know, if you get a chance, do the big thing and it will turn out to be more popular than you expect. So as far as Tokyo, Paris, Amsterdam, what were some of the things that they did right? Oh, so so Tokyo, um, or rather the Japanese, actually, what, the thing that they did, which I think will horrify maybe a lot of your listeners, but in 1957, they made all on-street parking illegal. Um, so if you want to own a car in Japan, you have to own your own parking space. Um, obviously, there are public parking spaces, public park, car parks and things that you can, can kind of park in, you know, if you, but you have to pay for parking. And so you can never really drive anywhere without paying for parking. Um, the other thing is that all of their expressways were built from the beginning as toll roads uh, with the tolls, you know, paying for the roads. And the result of this is just that, you know, a lot of people in Japan own cars, but they don't use them. They drive them, you know, less than 4,000 miles a year on, for, on average for the average Japanese car. Um, so, they have their cars. It's like, yeah, we'll have a car for the for you know the thing where you absolutely need it, but um, but but they don't use it for literally everything. Um, and in Paris, you know, what they've been doing is is much more kind of they've been installing bike lanes everywhere and getting rid of parking spaces in the city centre. And that's really been amazing in the last few years. You know, if you look at Paris, even twenty or thirty years ago, I used to go with my parents. Like it was so traffic traffic kind of choked all of the time so polluted and now you know very few cars just in the city center so and that's been happening in london it's actually happening you know in quite a few american cities it's been happening in new york um the beginning of pedestrianizing pedestrianizing streets taking out city center highways i wrote about a highway on the banks of the seine that was that's now turned into an urban park so you can do things like that too um so I think, you know, the Japanese one, I, I, I love what's happened in Japan, but I think that's the hardest to replicate. They just started the right way. But I think European countries and some American cities offer offer things that can be achieved now, too. The Japanese one is hardest to replicate just because we haven't been doing it already. <laughs> I think so. I just think if you tell people, no, we're going to take away all of the street parking in your city and you can only have a car if you've got a, you know, a garage space. Um, and we're doing that tomorrow. There will be there will be a revolution. You know, I don't <laughs> think any politician who tries to propose that will get away with it. I, I would be delighted. I would be up there with them, you know, the the. Um, but I'd probably also be first against the firing squad rule when, when it was kind of overturned. So <laughs> so what are some of the American cities that are making big strides right now? Um, so there's, there's several. I think one place that's actually been remarkable is Minneapolis. Um, I spent some time there earlier this year and some time um, last summer. And you really can get kind of anywhere in the city on a bicycle they put these incredible bike lanes in um and people do it even in the winter obviously they're you know pretty bleak winters there you know but there are people who, who get around all winter by bike and and they have been the other thing that they've been doing that's very remarkable is um uh expanding the amount of housing they've been allowing lots of housing to be built in the city center which means that you know if you have one a job downtown or you want to go downtown you know you can live in an apartment where you can walk to work um so they've been making that more possible i think that that that's sort of a great surprising success and and less well known perhaps than what's been happening in you know new york city which obviously is about finally to have its congestion charge and and that's an incredible long time due but it's incredible um uh so yeah there, and, but there are there are more kind of smaller things elsewhere i think some of the things that have been happening in california with um attempts to kind of put in you know build more more housing around public transport now they're just beginning but i i'm quite ho hopeful that they will begin to you know create some quite rapid change and hopefully fix some of that state's enormous housing costs problems too because i think something that's not appreciated is that the amount of land we're using for cars and for parking spaces is one of the reasons why housing is so expensive in, you know, the bigger cities in this country. Well, and, and something that gets brought up a lot is high-speed rail, uh, this concept that 
there's the local driving issues, like getting to work, going to the grocery store or whatever. But then there's also, you know, people like to travel. They like to go around. And, you know, here in Nebraska, for example, uh, I've got a family cabin that's three hours away. So we'll drive to it. Right. And so that's that's something that's kind of normalized. And there's proposals about expanding high speed rail to make it something that maybe looks closer to Europe. What, what are some of the stumbling blocks for America in implementing that kind of big public transportation at a national level? Well, a lot of people on a national level, it's hard because this is a very big country, and um, the the and uh, a rail, you know, has to move people between very densely populated areas to be efficient generally. But I think if you look at the northeast, um, you know, that's at least as densely populated as Europe, and it has a train line that already people use an awful lot, going from you know Boston all the way down to kind of Washington D.C that could be way faster with and, and used an awful lot more and would be transformational. So I think that that's the place you could get genuine high-speed rail. That, you know, it's a kind of travesty that it's not happening. I think elsewhere in the country, you know, you sort of have to work city by city, but it's kind of, you know, Florida has been building out a, not quite high-speed, but a, a network that, that's, um, that people are using more. And it's done by by housing and, and one of the great challenges is that, that in this country and, and actually the UK is similar because we're building a new rail line in the UK that's costing an absolute fortune we really gold plate stuff in the kind of English speaking world we make the reviews and the amount of kind of bureaucracy and consultation that you have to go through before you can build anything so extraordinarily hard that it really just raises the cost enormously and I think you know I, I, I don't want to endorse kind of the Chinese government in general but I think you know there is they have been able to build railways incredibly quickly in that country that have spread across the, the built a whole network that, that that's now one of the biggest in the world and and I don't think you want to go quite as aggressively as the Chinese in, in usurping property rights um, but uh, but you know the, the level uh, the difficulty of, of, of building something is something that's that, that's become a really big problem for the US I mean we're not just talking high-speed rail really any kind of infrastructure is just it's overwhelmingly expensive to build anything new in this country and I, I, I think that's that doesn't have to be the case. It wasn't always the case. You know, this, this country was built on railways and, and it wasn't always this idea of, oh, you had to go through 15 different levels of government review and bureaucracy before you could even break ground. No, you just went and built a railway. So I think kind of recovering some of that kind of capitalist spirit of we're just going to build something um, is 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 going to be reducing those costs a bit is, 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 is where... The big infrastructure projects, the railways, that's where it's going to come from. Is, is this bureaucracy one of the stumbling blocks as well for a city, um, like a city from implementing public transportation? Like Omaha has a bus line and there's a couple other options, but there's there's not a lot. And so I think even the idea of if we had options to get more places in the city, more people would probably use them. I'm not sure what exactly the stumbling blocks are. Is it generally just cost? I think cost is one. Um, I think also there's a kind of mental thing in in, in a lot of American cities and uh, and, and politicians and, and people often see public transport as a kind of service for either the very poor or for people who who can't drive. And I think if as long as you treat it as a kind of safety net as opposed to as a a service, you know that anybody might want to use or, or could benefit from it will always be sort of subpar and you know a lot of american cities have bus systems that sort of will take you you know you can theoretically get everywhere in the city but only there's only one bus an hour and that's never going to kind of coax people out of their cars i think what you have to sort of focus on is particular corridors where you can have really high you know intensity um, kind of use and develop along those corridors in a sort of dense way. And that means, you know, upzoning, which is often very unpopular, but it generally works if you can kind of allow apartments to be built along those lines. That That's kind of, I think you have to pick a, a neighborhood basically that's already got some density and just sort of keep growing it. But, but, you know, Canadian cities look an awful lot like American cities and are often just as sprawling, but they run twice as many buses. Um, so sometimes it's just 
the, the, the cost and the willingness to pay it, I think, is sometimes lacking. It's that, and I, I go back to it, it's that sense of, oh, public transport, you know, it, it's a social service and it's not for me. And so there isn't the, always the support for it. And um, But actually, people really benefit from public transport if it's kind of widely available. I mean, you know, it saves you a lot of money, um, especially if you don't have to run two cars. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Daniel Knowles, author of the new book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. What do you think? Are cars worth the trouble of city design, air pollution, and carbon emissions? Do you see a future without them? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in an upcoming show. I think uh, a lot of people see the concerns about cars, uh, in particular the context of climate change, and they say, well, the easy solution here is if I get an electric car, that will alleviate a lot of my participation or complicity in some of these bigger problems. What do you make of the electric car revolution? I mean, I think that it's completely necessary that we begin to electrify, you know, our our, our fleets. And I think, you know, you're you know, you're in Omaha and just, you know, there's a bus line. I think that, frankly, it's, it, we will have to electrify cars there. But the argument... I think, you know, if you, that I make in the book is, is that electrification is, is not going to solve our climate change issues quickly enough on its own because, well, first, electric cars are very expensive. And I, I, I did some reporting from, from the Democratic Republic of Congo in the book, and they, you know, they have these very heavy batteries that contain cobalt that comes from Congo and has to be mined. And there's only so much of it there that's been got very expensive. Um, so uh and lithium so i think kind of you know we have 1.4 billion cars in the on the planet and to turn them all electric fast enough will be really challenging um and they consume an awful lot of electricity we then have to you know have something like two or three times as much power generated by our power stations and we're trying to change our power stations to be you know more more um climate friendly uh, already you know so we're trying to we have to reduce the amount of gas and coal that we're burning and and replace it but also replace it three or four times over to to be able to charge all the cars so the argument is that you know great we should have electric cars but we should also be trying to find ways that people drive them less don't need to drive as far and you know um and maybe don't need to own as many of those cars too i think and you know if you look at one of the countries that has electrified their fleet most it's norway and you know, something like half of new cars sold in Norway are electric now, and they're they're changing really quickly. But they're also reducing the number of cars. They're taking out parking spots. They're allowing more development, kind of near you know near public transport, and and uh, and and that's really the only way I think it it can work if we really seriously want to reduce our emissions. Electrification is part of it, but it's we also just have to to switch away from cars a bit too. Well, and part of this is then just the cultural change. And we started this conversation with this love oh, that yes. certain, at least <laughs> some Americans have, of their cars. And uh, I don't I don't know how you rewire that affection exactly. <laughs> Do you? I think it's tricky, but I actually think it's happening. Um, if you look at, you know, just age, you know, I mean, I'm 35, but people a lot younger, younger than me, they're, they're really people are learning to drive a lot later. Um, in in this country, but actually all around the world. And I don't think there's as much affection for cars as there used to be. There's a sense of, oh, it's a thing you need. And I think that begins to to change as 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 you as people become aware of 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 what it's like not to own a car. And you know, there, there's a study I cite in the book that shows that um, switching from driving to work to walking to work increases your happiness as much as. Uh, to a similar length walk in terms of the time that is um as much as falling in love basically um people really are miserable driving so i think kind of it, i don't th- it, there is a cultural change that has to happen but i think it's mostly just getting people to realize there are alternatives and it doesn't have to be like that because i think a very large proportion of people don't love being in their cars they don't love being stuck in traffic they don't love kind of city driving and they recognize that you know i mean i will love driving if i'm out in the desert you know and i'm the only guy on the road and i'm going on some camping trip and it's stunning that's a time for driving but kind of getting around your city nobody really enjoys that sort of driving and and it's scary and dangerous and crashes are more and more common and you know thousands of people are dying 
And so I, I think people are aware of how much it sucks. They just don't always believe that there's an alternative. So, so if I can get the idea across that, that there can be, that's what I'd hope to achieve. Right. Well, I think it works in a, a way that is not always that uh, it's not as linear as you'd hope, because it's sort of like for them to demand changes, for the people to demand some kind of rethinking of how transportation works in the cities or redesigning parts of the cities. They have to be aware of what they would need to demand to make that a thing. And not everyone has exposure yeah. to that. So I know generally the, the conventional wisdom is that the Midwest gets everything a couple of decades late. Do you think the fact that maybe <laughs> the coasts have some of these alternatives is enough to create a momentum that is maybe moving inward? I think it will come. Yeah, I think it will come. I mean, I think that, you know, politicians are already sort of aware that they, you know, they want to kind of attract people to move to their cities and that one of the ways you can do so is by you know offering something that feels like an urban lifestyle that that that's popular it's talked about a lot so i think it will it will come even to even to the the broader midwest um some of it but uh i, I hope so anyway as somebody who's moved to the to the midwest and now lives here so <laughs> I mean, your book being called Carmageddon, it's obviously a pun, and it's one that draws attention to the fact that this is not just like a, a nice policy change. It's sort of like, a, these are real problems. You should look at it this way. So, I mean, how have you started to try to get the average person to be aware of the problem the same way you started to become aware of it and couldn't unsee it? Oh, God, you mean other than writing a book? Um, well, in addition to, maybe. <laughs> no, I mean, I am increasingly find myself talking to people about it all the time um, uh, and I'm attending events and, and, you know, I'm involved in a whole bunch of interesting kind of um, urbanist and cycling organizations here in Chicago that I met some incredible people um, who are trying to spread the message a bit and trying to get that across. And, and, and sometimes it can feel like pushing at an open door. One thing that I've, I've been really um, interested is hearing just anecdotally people, you know, obviously living in Chicago, you don't always need a car, but I meet a lot of people in the suburbs who tell me about how they've just bought an electric bike to do the, um, the school run pick up the kids and this means that you know it's it's a lot quicker because you don't have to wait in the traffic queue just sometimes getting that across is uh it can be like pushing an open door you know you you just talk to people and they go oh yeah i hadn't thought of that but here's the thing that i wanted to or here's the thing that i've just been trying um you know a lot of people recently have been selling their cars because the the price of used cars has gone up so much and because they're like oh i'll make a profit on my car and then working out that maybe they didn't need it as much as they thought in the first place. So I, I think just sort of pushing it those trends. But honestly, the main way in which I'm doing it is I'm, I'm writing, I wrote the book, I, uh, and I'm, I'm also writing as many pieces as I can for The Economist on sort of how transport is changing. Uh, so, I'm, you know, mostly using my work, um, <laughs> both reporting on it and advocating for it. <laughs> so. so it sounds like then the, the way, at least in this particular context, to get people to care about externalities is to convince them that actually the thing that is imposing costs on everybody else is also a problem for you, just maybe not in ways you could see. Yeah. Exactly. That's really it. The, you know, I'm not just trying to say it's you're making other people's lives worse. It's that they're making your life worse at the same time. Um, you know, everybody's sort of worse off, including drivers. And, you know, and one of the points I make in the book is that if you are, if you really need to drive, um, you really need a car. And there are certain tasks, which even I accept, a car is the most helpful way of doing it if you've got to carry something really heavy back from the store or um you know you've got a very elderly relative you've got to transport who wouldn't be able to get on the train very easily or whatever like there are lots of reasons why you might want a car but you're sharing the road with loads of people who like don't need to be in their car they're just driving on their own to work and you've got to share this 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 road with you've got to sit in traffic with them and go a further distance um you know uh to be able to get anywhere with with, with all of these people who who if cities were organized differently wouldn't need to be in a car so it kind of makes life worse for the people who really need to drive too um uh, you know i kind of think everybody loses out from the sheer number of cars that we have i'm not saying that we should have no cars but having cars for literally everything so that if you want to get you know a pint of milk you've got to drive two miles from your neighborhood that's insane 
Well, this is also an easier solution than trying to solve the problems of the limits of human empathy. Well, quite. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes it does come across as, oh, well, you have to be a real goody two-shoes. You have to be a complete saint to give up your car. And the reality is that it does sometimes feel like that. It's structures and incentives that are in place that are forcing you to have to have a car rather than, you know, the other way around. And so you should at least be kind of hopefully grumpy about that, even if you're still stuck with your car, even if individually all you can do is kind of hassle your, you know, your local city councillor or mayor or whatever and go, please, I, you know, like a bike lane. Um, uh, please, I'd like some cheaper housing. Um, at least you kind of can make that argument now um, and, and be aware of the way in which the, the world is, you know, in which everything's set up to force you to spend $1,000 a month running your car. So the book is out there. Um, you've done a lot of reporting on this. You're continuing to report on it. Um, where is a place people can go to learn more about the book? Maybe their interest is peaked. As, as I said at the beginning, it's Omaha. There's a lot of people who probably love their cars, probably, uh, you know, are, are maybe sad at the, even the concept of letting go of their cars the same way. You know, you don't want your pet to die at some point. Uh, so for, for people who maybe are like, all right, I'll hear them out. I want to learn more. Where, where can they go to understand what your mission is? Um, so if they go to my, I have a Substack. Um, it's called Notes on Carmageddon, um, and so if you search for that, and you'll be able to find it. And I, I write occasional piece. I link to my reporting in the Economist there, but I, I um, you know, there's also links to places where you can read um, extracts of the books. And we've we've had excerpts that are published in a few places, so you can read some parts of it now um, without having to, you know, pay for it um, to get a sense of it. If if, uh, if you want. To sort of to to uh, to try it out, um, and uh, you know, and I, I yeah, I write occasional blog posts and things that that keep you abreast of what I'm writing about. So uh, the other place is you can follow me on Twitter. So I'm, I'm DL Knowles. Um, that's D L Knowles K N O W L E S. So I'm on Twitter with that that, uh, and I, I tweet about all these things, and I tweet to my to my work and um, so there's a whole world out there of kind of advocacy that 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 that. Uh, I can try and open open up your, your listeners to a little bit. So, <laughs> and of course, the book is called Carmageddon: How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It, which I imagine is fairly easy to find in the age of you can order things online on the internet or maybe people's local bookstores. Do you have a, do you have, is there a place you want people to look for it? Oh God, anywhere they can get it. Um, it should be you know it's in stock. If your local bookstore doesn't have it, they'll be able to order it in. Um, Amazon has it too, um, which is often the easiest way. But you know, there's 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 uh, um, I mean, you know, local bookstores are often uh, they will love it if you kind of go and order it from from them if you want to buy it. So um, and they will be able to get it in. Uh, and uh, so I think you know I, I do like supporting local bookstores. Yes, we do too. And I appreciate getting the chance to talk to you, to pick your brain a little bit about this and to uh, consider what a carless life for me might look like as well. So thank you so much for being on the show. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.